Hello and welcome to Amplify Archaeology. Castles loom large both across the landscape and in our imagination. But what actually was a castle? How do we define it? And who built them? Who brought them to Ireland? Were they an introduction that came in with the Normans in the late 12th century? Or could you say that castles existed in Ireland before the Normans? I had the great pleasure today of sitting down with Tag O'Keefe. We discussed castles and their context. We looked at how Irish castles fit into the European landscape. We'll get straight into it. I hope you enjoyed the programme. So I'm delighted today to be speaking with Professor Tiger O'Keefe and we're going to be discussing all things medieval and, and particularly with a, a focus on castles today as well. And, but Tiger, can I just start by finding out or defining to a degree what a castle was? Uh, am I right in thinking it's the 45 residents of a medieval lord? Is it as simple as that? Well, you're kind of right. Um, you're about 70% right. Yeah, uh, you've only just started the podcast and I'm already giving you a grade. Um, <laughs> I'll take that. Uh, the problem with the word castle, Neil, is that it's never defined for us in the Middle Ages. Hmm. We know the origin of the word. Um, it, it, it appears around the 11th century in Western Europe. Uh, it's derived from the Latin castellum and it first appears in Romance languages, which are languages derived from um, spoken Latin, basically. Hmm. But when the word appears nobody contemporaneously told us what it was supposed to mean. Mm -hmm. So scholars have reconstructed a meaning and your definition is the reconstructed meaning. Mm -hmm. The reason I've docked you some marks is, well, I've docked you 15% basically for for the fact that castle sometimes could refer to a jurisdiction, not necessarily a building or a structure. Sometimes the word is used in a way which indicates that um, it's intended um, to refer to an area under the control of a medieval lord. Okay. So there's a bit of confusion around that. Uh, even a town can sometimes be a castle. There are towns in France which refer to as castles. Um, they were fortified, but the word castle applies to the entire settlement. So it's not just a, a single building or set of buildings. It can be a, a larger feature of landscape. Mm-hmm. Um, also, um, it's not always a medieval lord. It can sometimes be a, a medieval lady um, mm-hmm. aristocratic women also had castles mm-hmm. um, they sometimes built castles they often inherited castles mm-hmm. um, in the period from the, the 11th to the 13th century um, uh, lords often died young you know, they died in battle and military service they got killed in tournaments mm-hmm. things like this it would not be unusual for a medieval woman to have had her first husband as soon as she uh, reached her teens believe it or not and by the time she would die in her 60s, she might have had three or four husbands. Mm-hmm. So these women often inherited castles, and they weren't housewife types as, as you know, they might be portrayed in sort of Disney movies. They were formidable ladies. Um, in Ireland, Grace O'Malley was a, a castle builder. She had castles. Yes. And um, like 
the one on Kerr Island. And of course, there's Ruisha the Verdon, who's a very famous castle builder in Ireland. If you, if you drive uh, north and turn off at Dundalk for Carrick Macross, you'll see Castle Roach, one of the most impressive oh, castles that appeared in Ireland, and it was built by a woman. Absolutely spectacular. And isn't there terrific folklore around Lady Ruiz here as well, didn't she? toss her architect out of a window so he couldn't build any similar castle? Well, um, reputedly so, yes. Um, I, I don't know the um, antiquity of that legend, mm-hmm. um, but, but I think I know the origin of the legend. Um, it's recorded in the late 11th century in France mm-hmm. uh, that a, an aristocratic woman killed her mason after he had designed for her a series of castles and he wanted... And she wanted um, no more castles of that type to be built for anybody else by him. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's recorded as an historical fact. We have a, a source for it. Uh, and my, my guess is that uh, that particular story was well known in Western Europe right. and was probably told uh, on uh, drunken evenings in castles <laughs> yes. owned by, by women who built castles. Uh-huh. And I suspect that's the origin of the Castle Roach story. Mm-hmm. It's very unlikely that Ruisha herself... Uh, killed her mason mm-hmm. um, the castle is very impressive but uh, it didn't the design didn't require that level of patenting I suppose you could say yeah the the gatehouse I suppose which is one of the most uh, iconic features about Castle Roach it'd be quite similar to some of the other gatehouses of the period even in Trahada the, the, the one in the town the St Lawrence's Gate would have a certain resemblance with it yes and I, I, and I think the, the two works are contemporary mm-hmm. the Castle Roach Gatehouse though is, is a particularly important gatehouse because mm-hmm. um, it is literally a gatehouse mm-hmm. uh, as you approach it it looks as if it's simply two towers with a, a passage through them yeah. but actually it's, it's a rectangular building with a kind of twin towered frontage on it okay. it is a building yeah. with towers at the front projecting to the front okay. so it's a proper gatehouse Mm-hmm. Uh, and actually it does look to be one of the very earliest of that design in these islands okay. um, I, 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 I think it's possibly the earliest mm-hmm. and in fact it may have influenced um, royal building of gatehouses in England so, oh, so it's an, an extremely important building so, and incredibly impressive absolutely, so maybe there is a kernel of truth there that she was trying to protect something quite special <laughs> yes, uh, uh, but, uh, but I think um, you know the castle is conventional enough overall. Yes, um, yes absolutely. Uh, that um, I, I, I imagine it's a, it's a drunken story. Yeah, that came from France, though. Yeah, well, it has its it, like everything. It has its source in truth somewhere. Um, but going back a little bit, when can we say that castle building actually started in Ireland? Did it come in with the Normans, or how? That's traditionally, I suppose, how we would understand it. Um, yeah. Um, uh, no, castle building began before the invasion. Um, the majority of castles in Ireland were built after the invasion, obviously, mm-hmm. but um, but castle building is a, is a pre-invasion phenomenon. We know that native Irish kings of the 12th century were castle building kings. Mm-hmm. Um, the first reference to castle building in Ireland is in 1124, mm-hmm. according to um, three sets of annals or chronicles. Um, the, the men of Connacht, presumably at the behest of Turlock O'Connor, who's the, the king of Connacht, built uh, castles in, in Galway, in Galway City itself, in Ballinasloe in Galway, and in Caluni in Sligo. Mm-hmm. So those are the, the first three castles referred to. And the word that's used in the annals is castell, um, C-A-I-S-T-E-L, mm-hmm. which um, uh, originated actually in 
uh, England in the middle of the 11th century. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's Anglo-Norman French. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the French that was spoken by the Normans who invaded England. Mm-hmm. So it came to Ireland from there. Um, but the first appearance in 1124 in a text doesn't necessarily the first, it represent the first use of the word. Sure. And my own suspicion, I've been thinking about this a lot recently and writing on it, my own suspicion is that castle building was going on in Ireland from the late 10th century. Okay. Um, someone like Brian Boru, uh, uh-huh. the great O'Brien, King of Munster, mm-hmm. um, fits the profile of a, of, of a castle building king mm-hmm. in late 10th century France. And okay. if you took him out of Ireland and put him in France, he would be a castle builder. Uh-huh. So, so my guess is there, there are lots of pre-invasion castles. Um, the documentation doesn't exist before the 12th century. Yes. But that doesn't mean that, that they weren't being built. That's very interesting. And could you say a little bit about what these pre-Norman castles might have looked like? Well, um, none survives, uh, unfortunately, or none is known to survive. It might be that there are castles around the country that simply don't have documentation and we've simply mis- misidentified them. But um, certainly the castle in Ballon is slow from 1124 um, was a mot. It was a tall, flat-topped mount of the type we identify with the Normans. Yes. Um, we know that because there's an early 18th century record of its appearance, um, and it, it, it's clearly a mot. I think the one in Athlone was also a mot. Um, a couple of the 12th century referenced castles were, were Cran Oaks. Mm-hmm. Um, so the evidence, um, while it's thin, would suggest that morphologically these were very heterogeneous that there was okay. no single type. Okay. And again, that would be consistent with what you have on the continent. Uh-huh. Um, my feeling is that a lot of them were mounds, that yeah. they were mound castles, they were mots. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and, uh, and I think if we excavated selective um, mots in Ireland and look, you know, looked below the Anglo-Norman phases, we would mm-hmm. probably find that they started life as native Irish mounds, native Irish castle mounds. That's so interesting. And again, it goes back to, uh, as you said at the, the very outset, that we need to change our picture of what a castle is. It's not necessarily a big stone fortress. It, it, yes, no, absolutely. In fact, I, I, in fact if, 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 you, if you want the, um, you know, the classic pre-Norman castle in Ireland, it's probably been hiding in plain sight for a long time. Mm-hmm. And that's the, the Fora on the Hill of Tara. Wow. If you think of the mound yes. on, on, the, uh, on the top of the hill, surrounded by Raw Nari, there's mm-hmm. a little enclosure beside it called Chalk Cormac. Mm-hmm. The fur is a flat-topped mound associated with kingship inauguration and so on. Mm-hmm. We tend to think that, um, that mots, that mound-formed castles, mm-hmm. were, were always fortresses. Mm-hmm. Um, but they weren't. They mm-hmm. were associated with, um, with kingship, with royal authority, with lordship. They were symbolic as much as they were... Um, practical yeah. and the furrow is is a mound not a burial mound at least we don't think it's a burial mound mm-hmm. the furrow is, is a mound um, that's that was intended to connote the power of the kings of Tara okay. um, uh, I wouldn't be remotely surprised if in excavation it turned out to be 10th early 11th century in date okay. um, and even the little enclosure beside it called Chuck Cormac yes. is like a bailey that's true that's true and, and perhaps in a sense, to you know, with that symbolic aspect, maybe the the phrase 
uh, elevation would suit better than mound it, because they're being these are being inaugurated on such sites yes, and, yes. and it's a sign of the well, elevation uh, of a king. Mound is probably okay. The word mm. mot is far more problematic. Yes, we, we, we yeah. use the word mot freely now, but actually. Originally, mot referred to any bank made of sods. Yeah, okay. It was often associated with irrigation on the continent. Mm-hmm. It's only from around the end of the 11th, the early 12th century, that it comes to be associated with um, the mound element of a castle. Yes, okay. But it's not always clear that's what it means. Right. Um, so we've kind of... Um, you know, we we've kind of naturalized it. It's now the you know the natural normal term for any mound yes. attached to a castle, but it seems to have had very specific meanings in the Middle Ages, mm-hmm. and we probably shouldn't use it. I think it's too late to stop it. Everybody uses it. Yeah. Um, but whenever I use the word, and certainly when I'm I'm writing the word, mm-hmm. I always imagine inverted commas around it. Okay. Yeah. That that's very interesting. And again, it's a bit of a it takes a little bit of a mind shift because. When you mention the word "mot," you have a very particular um, idea in mind. And when we look at the the Normans that did bring in their own form, moving on from the mots, um, do you think they just wholesale imported the style from the, the land in England and Wales and Normandy, or do you think that they did something a little different in Ireland? Or uh, could you speak a little bit to that? Well, the first um, generation. Um, castles built after the invasion are are absolutely English. Mm-hmm. They've come in from England and Wales. Mm-hmm. Um, there's very little innovation. Mm-hmm. Um, by the time you reach the 13th century, you begin to see um, innovation. And you see innovation basically because the, the settlers in Ireland have no connection with England and Wales anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first generation um, probably moved back and forward a little bit, but certainly within a couple of generations... Um, they are Irish-born, they have no connections, they don't go back to England, they don't see what's happening, so they, mm-hmm. they basically develop their own tradition. Mm-hmm. But the first-generation castles of the invaders are um, straight out of the English playbook, so to speak. Okay. So places like Trim, um, Carrickfergus, Dunamace, Maynooth, and so on. Mm-hmm. What I find very interesting about them, Neil, is that they are um, anachronistic um, by the standards of contemporary England. Okay. They are just a little bit old-fashioned when they're built here. Okay. Um, so Trim, for example, the, the, the great tower in Trim, the dominant monument in yes. Trim, um, we know it's built in the mid-1170s, mm-hmm. but it's built to a design which was going out of fashion in England mm-hmm. in the 1170s. Um, it's built to a design which, if you found it in England, you'd be thinking maybe... 1150s, 1140s, it's an old-fashioned building. Maynooth okay. um, is especially old-fashioned. Maynooth is, is, is mm-hmm. weird. Um, uh, again, it's mid-1170s, but it belongs to a stylistic tradition of the 1120s. Okay. The tradition that was going by the 1140s. It's a very old-fashioned building. Mm-hmm. And I think part of the reason is, uh, maybe the reason is that these Anglo-Norman lords wished to convey that they were um, established, that they were, in a sense, old money. Mm. They built something old-fashioned okay. deliberately, right. um, not to impress the Irish, who wouldn't know, uh-huh. but to impress um, fellow Anglo-Norman settlers. They're okay. showing off their pedigree. Uh-huh. Um, much the same way as you know, back in the, in the 70s and 80s, you had the appearance of, of Georgian villages in Ireland. Yes, um, yes. You know, sort of pastiches of, of an older style uh-huh. intended to give a kind of um, 
kind of kudos to those who own them. Well, well, it's easier to sell the place to to potentially uh, to settlers, for example, if they mm. feel familiar with it, if they Absolutely. understand it, if yes. there's a reassurance. Because I imagine for people coming over, whether they were Flemish or English or Welsh, there might have been a certain, um, uh, I, I suppose, a certain reluctance maybe to a degree to come to Ireland, which might have been considered a dangerous mm. place or mm-hmm. a very mm-hmm. foreign place to mm-hmm. what they were used to. So perhaps, yeah, the, that bit of reassurance. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you're touching on a, on a, on a separate problem in a sense, which mm. is the number of settlers who come to Ireland. Mm-hmm. Um, I've had this... A little battle with people over the years about the numbers. Yeah. Um, uh, some scholars are very much of the opinion that as soon as the invasion happens, there is a significant migration of people to Ireland from England and Wales, mm-hmm. and indeed from um, you know sort of other uh, slightly more distant places as well. Mm-hmm. Um, my own sense has long been that um, the number of settl- settlers was actually quite small. Okay. Not until well into the 13th century sure. um, did numbers begin to increase. That is very much a, a military uh, operation in the late 12th century. Yes. It's, a, it's a change of government. Uh-huh. But the other thing about the, the, the design of these early castles uh, is while there was a, um, a choice involved in making a castle that looked old-fashioned, mm-hmm. um, there was also a challenge of money. Mm. Um, the Anglo-Normans who invaded Ireland were not... The most prosperous of Anglo Normans. No, they, that's uh, true. You know, yeah. they, they didn't come from big estates in England, mm-hmm. um, uh, so there was a, a certain sort of financial limit on what they could, what they could build. Yes. Um, so they were unlikely to have been able to generate something truly innovative in Ireland. Yes. Um, uh, at no stage were any of these Irish castles particularly wealthy. Certainly not by comparison with what you would have in England or France at the same time. And the castle builders themselves, the architects, the master mm-hmm. masons, incredibly skilled work. I, mm-hmm. I take it they came over with the invasion as well, did they? They were, they were very used to building this. Probably. Um, difficult to know because mm-hmm. we, we don't have names. Um, we have one famous name from the 13th century, um, but from the period of the invasion, we don't have any names at all. So we don't okay. know who they are. Um, uh, but I think you can see... Um, the movement of masons, mm-hmm. not in the castle architecture, but actually in church architecture, okay. when Gothic architecture appears in Ireland, yes. um, first yeah. appearing in Dublin probably in the 1190s, mm-hmm. uh, and then there seems to be a steady stream of masons from the west of England into the early 13th century, building cathedrals like Christ Church and so on. Sure. Um, and thereafter, I think the, the number of masons travelling to Ireland um, falls away very quickly. Okay. You know, um, a, a homegrown masons Start begin to, to take the lead dominant, and again yes. begin to produce you know, slightly idiosyncratic works because yes. they don't know what's happening elsewhere. They're not travelling. Yes, it's not that constant um, keeping up with the latest fashion. Of no, 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 and fashions are slow to come to Ireland. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm always aware of saying that because I don't want to um, uh, buttress the narrative that we are in any way backward. Yes. But uh, styles that develop in England... Um, come here slowly. Yeah. Um, uh, I think it's, it's probable that in many cases, people in Ireland did not know what was happening, did not feel a need to know and were satisfied mm-hmm. with what we were doing, and I th- what, what they were doing. And I think it would be wrong of us um, to judge them negatively as well. Oh, of course. You know, as has happened in the past. And they're also dealing with their own particular, it was its own particular situation in Ireland. It was quite different in, in some ways politically. Mm-hmm. For example, siege defences were perhaps 
not quite as needed to be as technologically advanced in some ways. Uh, that yeah, yeah, no, I think it's absolutely true. I, mm-hmm. I think castles, to get back to castles, castles mm-hmm. which are um, attacked successfully mm-hmm. um, uh, suffered from having small garrisons. Yes. That was yeah. the problem. Garrisons yeah. were small. And we know mm-hmm. garrisons were small because there were some records of that. Yeah. Um, you know, castles were, were, were rarely scenes of warfare anyway. Yeah. The sort of vision of, of sort of boiling oil and catapults and so on. This yes. isn't a reality. Um, most castles never saw uh, any um, particularly aggressive activity around them. Uh-huh. Sieges were very rare. Yes. And when sieges did happen, they didn't last very long either. Yes. Okay. Um, for the most part, these castles lived fairly quiet lives. Yes, very interesting to me. So in terms of comparing it to what we can see on the continent uh, and elsewhere, the particularly famous castles here in Ireland, how, how did they stack up, if you like, in the European picture? Um, I suppose the most famous Irish castle um, internationally would be Trim, mm-hmm. uh, because it's a, it's, a, it's a classic of its period. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also a very strange castle in that um, it's a real mishmash. It's a whole series of, of failures, in a sense. Uh, the, the Lacey family who built it um, clearly didn't have a coherent plan or if mm-hmm. they had a coherent plan they weren't able to follow it and if you go to Trim um, and think about what you're, what you're looking at you very quickly realise that um, it's, a, it's a collection of different bits of castles mm-hmm. with big empty parts and towers which face in the wrong direction and so on it's a very strange castle yes. but it's the one that's probably best known um, I think if I had to pick a castle in, in Ireland that is of genuine international importance a castle which is absolutely at the at the vanguard of european castle building it would be roscommon okay the royal castle in roscommon um we know a lot about it 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 was laid out to its present plan in the mid 1270s um under edward the first uh he of course is the famous castle builder of north wales carnarvon conway bomaris harlech and so on Mm -hmm. Um, the design of roscommon laid out in the 1270s was not repeated in Wales until the 1280s mm-hmm. and those castles in Wales of course are world heritage site castles they're celebrated yes. as, as great masterpieces of castle building um, yeah. industry mm-hmm. um, Roscommon is the first time that plan was, was used That's so it, in a sense it's a, it's a dry run for the Welsh castles yes. um, uh, it's probably um, a design which Edward himself came up with we know Edward had travelled widely on the continent uh-huh. we know he'd been um, to the Holy Land we know he came back through Italy and so on mm-hmm. um, South France mm-hmm. um, it's not improbable that Edward drew the basic plan for a master mason to convert it into a building mm-hmm. but its importance on the European scale is that uh, it's the first time in these islands that we see a perfectly symmetrical plan with a gate tower in the middle of one of the long walls right uh, so while people celebrate the welsh castles people should also celebrate the fact that the the paterfamilias if you like is sitting in a field in roscommon that's and, right uh, i've been thinking for some time and i haven't got around to doing it yet because of various other things but thinking for some time that we really need to to explore the possibility of having it entered as a as an adjunct world heritage site okay it's of that importance that's really interesting, and of course, I think there's a, a window of opportunity to submit suggestions for world heritage sites. Yes, and I, I and the other 
the reason why I think Roscommon would be an attractive World Heritage Site mm-hmm. is that um, uh, its, its site itself, the place where it is on the landscape, yeah. has an association with the town, with the town of story. Yes. Um, yeah. The lake beside the castle was called Ainlock. Uh-huh. And uh, Ainlock is where the, the story of the town was revealed famously. Uh-huh. Um, uh, um, Ainlock was regarded as the entrance to the other world. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, while it's not certain the Ainlock of Roscommon is the one of town fame, it may mm-hmm. be further up the county. I have a colleague in Galway who argues that it is. Mm-hmm. Um, when you look at the Roscommon Ainlock and map its location relative to the prehistoric landscape of central Roscommon, Ratcrown, and so on, yes. you find that the, the prehistoric monuments begin at the lake and then move northwards, which gives the impression that, to me anyway, that um, this lake marked for people in the Middle Ages the point at which the prehistoric, prehistoric ritual landscape was entered. So on that basis, I think the lake is probably the one of tall and fame. So what you have then, basically, in Roscommon is not just a great Edwardian royal castle of international importance, Mm -hmm. but an Edwardian royal castle associated with ancient mythology. Mm -hmm. And in fact, people might say, well, hang on a second, Uh, that's just coincidence. Mm -hmm. Um, It mightn't be. We know that Edward I was interested in mythology. Mm -hmm. We know that he was interested in Arthurian legend. We know that uh, he built a replica round table. So it's entirely consistent with the um, uh, with our understanding of Edward of the First as the sort of man who would choose a location for a castle once he learned it had a mythological association. And wouldn't uh, would it be correct to say as well that you know as as part of going going back to the Normans those first few waves uh, of conquest there. Uh, that they deliberately cited a lot of the centres of power on old Irish centres of power uh, as well. Yes, no, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and this is a, a pan-European phenomenon. Castle yeah. building uh, was sometimes on ver- a virgin ground, mm-hmm. but, um, but when there was something of existing importance, mm-hmm. uh, um, it, was, it was occupied, it was reused. Mm-hmm. Part of it was symbolic, yes. clearly, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know the, the the taking of a of a site of symbolic value to those who were there beforehand is a very powerful gesture of who's now in charge. Absolutely. But part of it was also practical. Yeah. Uh, if there was a pre-existing mound, for example, mm-hmm. it's very easy to put a um, uh, a new building on top of it. Yeah. Um, if there's a pre-existing stone building, mm-hmm. it's easy to take the stone and recycle it, and for people to see it's been recycled. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, of course. Um, uh, Places of power in, in the Irish context, uh, in, in pre-invasion mm-hmm. Ireland, were also places to which um, there were roads. Yes, and, so and, transport. And there were population and, and so on. So there's already yes. an infrastructure. Yes. Yeah. Um, so, so why go to um, a virgin site yeah. um, with no access Absolutely. when you can plop your castle on top of something already existing? So there's a practicality to it. Yeah. By, by that rationale, would you think it's um, in any way unusual that there's not a, a Norman castle sitting on top of the hill of Tara at the moment? Well, yes. I, I, the Anglo-Normans seem to have steered clear of the hill and they, they, yeah. they settled near to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know the answer to that. I, I, I suspect that in the 13th century, or late 12th, early 13th century, mm-hmm. um, when the settlement of the area is, is, is underway, Tara may have lost some of its luster. Okay. It just become yeah. not an important yes, place anymore, uh, um, to a degree. Uh, uh, and of course, um, there's only a value in taking over a pre-existing monument um, mm-hmm. if 
in its new configuration, it's of use to you. Yes. And, yeah, yeah. and there, there were other locations in that landscape, I think, that were more um, uh, of practical value to the Anglo-Normans than the hill. Such uh, as Trim, I suppose. Yeah, or, or even remember. just across, yeah. uh, across the valley and screen, places like yes, that, yes, you know, yes, that, that were simply more useful. Uh-huh. Um, so while they, they might well have you know, fortified the Hill of Tower and put in a little village beside it, may indeed have put a little village beside mm. it, um, it wasn't a, a good enough central place for them yes. um, for them to, to change their mental map of how Meath was going to look. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. So, okay. so therefore, they, you know, they left it. Mm-hmm. Um, and in a way, that underlies, underlines the, the importance of Tara, that mm-hmm. um, Tara itself had been such a sacred place that mm-hmm. people had stayed away from it. Yes. And it had remained a centre of, yeah. of, of veneration but had not attracted settlers for that reason. Uh-huh. And therefore, by the time the Anglo-Normans invade, it's simply a hill. Yes. It's a mythological yeah. hill, but it's yeah. simply a hill. Okay, very interesting indeed. And I suppose moving on towards the end of Tower, uh, the end of castles, I should say, in Ireland. Uh, Ireland is particularly famous, or uh, you go for a drive anywhere in the country, particularly around where I live down in South Tipperary on the borderlands of Waterford and Kilkenny, mm-hmm. you see these tower houses everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they look quite different in a, in a lot of ways to, to the traditional Norman or medieval castles. Uh, were they primarily defensive or were they more about um, big ego statements on the landscape to a degree? Um, they're not really defensive, Neil, at all. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they functioned defensively the way a beware of the dog Mm-hmm. functions defensively today yes. or, 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 a, or, or a house alarm yeah. um, when they were built it was um, generally the case that castles were not being besieged mm-hmm. you know you needed a safe place at night in case you know, roving bands of robbers might sort of break in and steal mm-hmm. your cattle and so on but there were no armies going to attack these places these mm-hmm. are, are private residences of people of, of, of some means yes um, yeah. and the, the tower house itself, the multi-storied tower, was basically a chamber tower. Now that mm-hmm. means is it contained the, the private accommodation of the lord, his wife and, and family. Okay. Um, a, a chamber in Latin is camera, and if you mm-hmm. hear of a court case held in camera, mm-hmm. it's a court case held in private. Okay. Um, and, okay. and chamber means a, a private space. Yeah. Um, beside these tall towers would originally have been a small um, external building, uh, um, a hall, mm-hmm. um, which was the place of um, uh, any sort of public audience, uh, hospitality, uh, uh, hospitality, yeah. people coming to pay the rents or whatever. Yes, um, and that's that was the function of the hall. Okay. And because because the hall was used less frequently, it was often a less substantial building. Okay. They were often built in timber. That's why you don't see them today. All oh, right, we've yeah. records of timber halls, mm-hmm. um, and the, the family lived within the tower. Mm-hmm. Um, by the time the tower houses were being built and the ones in South Tipperary are among mm-hmm. the very best by that stage even the practice of eating your dinner in the hall mm-hmm. um, was, w- w- was dying and people okay. were increasingly eating their dinner within their private chambers okay. you know, TV dinners mm-hmm. um, and as the practice of eating dinner inside your chamber rose the, the status of the hall went into decline okay. Um, okay. so as the chamber towers got bigger and more yeah. elaborate the halls often got smaller Right. So when you travel across South Tipperary or Kilkenny, Waterford, East Cork, mm-hmm. you'll often find the stone tower and no other structure. Yes. But yes. there was another structure 
simply mm. disappeared. Yes, it's not the um, But the origin of these towers, these towers are the, the late medieval um, uh, equivalents of towers like, like Trim and Carrick mm. Fermis. Um, that's where they've come from. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're not unusual, they're not, un- they're not unique. Tower mm-hmm. building is all over Europe in that period. Okay. We I just know. have a lot of them. We all. just have a good number. So, uh, Tyg, do you have a particular favourite? Is there one castle that really clings close to your heart? Is the one place you love? Yeah, um, the, the castle that started me out, actually, not just um, my interest in castles, but my interest in archaeology, uh, it's Castle in Cork. If you ever drive down to Cork, just outside the village of Kilworth, you can see it from mm. the main road mm-hmm. in Moor Park. There's mm-hmm. a, a tower. It's Cutlake Castle. My father was mm-hmm. from Kilworth, and uh, he he brought me there as a little boy, myself and my brother. And uh, I remember going. I remember very clearly entering the castle with him, and he went up the stairs ahead of us, and so on. And this is you know forty years ago, um, more than forty years ago, and. Um, uh, I remember the excitement. I, I, I remember him actually when we got onto the um, onto the first floor. Actually, sorry, the second floor. Oh God, the second floor. Um, there was a stone floor because there was a vault underneath it. Mm-hmm. And I remember him holding us back from the stairwell and putting his foot out on the floor to test that the floor was safe. Mm-hmm. Of course, the floor uh, was safe. It was a stone floor. It wouldn't uh-huh. collapse. And I now know that. And I could have told him, if, uh, <laughs> had I known a bit more, that you know, in East Cork, of course, it's a stone floor. Mm-hmm. at that level in the building um, but but I remember him doing that I remember him doing it vividly and and I still do it myself when I go into a castle I, mm-hmm. some little sort of homage um, to him I do it um, but what fascinated me about that castle was uh, was the fact that, that it was a ruin um, mm-hmm. uh, I enjoyed exploring it I wanted to explore more but I was particularly fascinated by how the building had died mm-hmm. that it was a ruin um, and, and every castle I went to see, the more ruined it was, the more fascinating it seemed to be to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, archaeology is, is, the, is the study of failure in a yeah. very fundamental way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I became fascinated with failure, with ruination, how things become unloved and forgotten. Mm-hmm. And in many ways, I, I, I've, I've pursued my interest in castles and in buildings because they are very tangible monuments of failure, mm-hmm. you know, um, I've always regarded archaeology as kind of an existential um, subject. You know, when you study archaeology, you think about what it means to be human, yes. to succeed and to Absolutely. fail, about the passage of time. Yeah. And I, I say this to students all the time uh, about archaeology. Uh, the reason why we want to know about the past is we want to know about ourselves. Yes. Yeah. Uh, the past is gone. It's dead. Mm-hmm. It, it's beyond knowing. You cannot really know it. Mm-hmm. Um, but by understanding the past, we throw a little light on what it means to be human in our own lives. Absolutely. I, I know I sound like a priest. <laughs> no, <laughs> you know, sort of, yeah. sort of follow Brian Trendy or something. Yeah. But, but I've always regarded archaeology as a subject which brings you close to the essence of what it is to be a person. Yes. I, I, that's why I do it. I, I think that's terrific. It, it's, um, it's a really nice way of considering it. After all, it's the study of people. So that's everything from Amplify Archaeology. Thanks very much for being with us. And I want to especially thank Professor Tagaki for his time and his insights there. I thought it was really fascinating. And there's definitely some new perspectives I have on castles and the landscape that I previously didn't consider. 
You can find more information about castles and medieval Ireland, including links uh, to publications recommended by Tyke and myself, on our website at barterheritage.ie. I hope you join us again for the next edition of Amplify Archaeology.